You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Kyle. I'm a member here of this church. Um, I'm going to do today's uh, teaching reading. So if you could pull out your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes 1. We're going to start in verse 12. Um, It's going to be a long passage. We're going to go through 226. So we're going to finish chapter 1 and read all of chapter 2. And if you have any trouble finding Ecclesiastes, turn to Psalms, biggest book of the Bible, hard not to miss, and then just go a little bit after that. Give you guys a chance to turn there. I think it will be on the screen as well. And when you're ready, could you please stand? We're going to stand in reverence to God's word as I read it. All right. Ecclesiastes 1.12 starts. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that it is also, I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks and more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there is nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, 
For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be the wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after wind. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all. Let's do this. If you didn't join us last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon. You're going to get kind of an introduction to this whole book of Ecclesiastes here, but one of the main concepts in this book, one of the most important things for you to understand what's being said by Solomon here um, is that word that's translated vanity. Some of your Bibles may say the word meaningless. This is the Hebrew word hevel, which essentially means like a mist of smoke, sort of an, an enigma or a paradox, right? That's what he's trying to tell us about life is that goodness and badness exist together and they're not mutually exclusive. How do you reconcile that, right? This is one of the deep human questions. Haven't you heard or even wrestled within yourself before um, through the question, how can there be so much suffering in the world? right? Um, Solomon is at least adjacently wrestling through that question here um, in the book, in the book. And um, C.S. Lewis, he has this beautiful quotation in uh, the book, Mere Christianity. He says this, he says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation um, was that I was made for another world. Think about that a moment. 
That is actually a really good summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. That as he's living life under the sun, the sort of the world where God is, in his perspective at least, uninvolved or uninterested, he finds all these desires that can't be met. He pours resources and pleasure into wisdom into on and on and on and on and still he's coming to the end and he's going, yeah, but it's just a wisp of smoke. I can't grab onto it. What do we do with this? Ecclesiastes is gonna help us. A couple of things for you to remember. I'm not gonna walk through all of last week's sermon, of course, but um, one, I want you to remember this is written by um, King Solomon, presumably, um, that he is wealthy, he doesn't lack resources, and so when he says he tried some stuff out to see what was enjoyable, he has some credibility, right? It's like if you say, I lived it up, but you have $12 in your bank account. I mean, you can have some fun with $12 to be certain, but Solomon was without limits on his resources. Didn't you hear that in the text? I had concubines, I had everything, I had all the sexual pleasure, all of the things that you could possibly imagine. Solomon had resources. Second, it's important for you to remember this morning that what we're reading right here is wisdom literature. That's how we interpret it well as why, by understanding what it is, because it's wisdom, we know a little bit better how to read it. Honestly, if you were to just open the book of Ecclesiastes and sort of jump around and read a passage, um, you would probably be one, kind of confused, like, why is the Bible saying this? And then number two, you'd also be depressed. <laughs> That's what happens in this book if you just sort of jump around. But we have to understand here the purpose of wisdom literature is not necessarily to just make a straightforward, straightforward argument that you can easily grab onto. Instead, in wisdom literature, the author is usually making observations about the world in sort of a poetic way, or uh, if you remember from English class, a hyperbole, like an extreme exaggeration for effect. That's what, that's what wisdom literature often does, and it does this to spur the reader on to deeper reflection. Solomon, don't miss this, wants you to think deeply about your life today. Consider the state of your life. Consider the state of the enjoyment of your life even. And third, it's important for us to recognize that this book is written from the perspective of a person who has tried to live his life apart from the fear of God. Like Solomon in young age, he's walking with God, even write Song of Solomon, this beautiful book about sex and marriage. And then he gets a little older and he's working through the wisdom of life and he constructs the Proverbs and then he gets to the end of his life. And at this point, it seems he has nearly walked away from God. He's at least wrestling with doubt. Doesn't he sound a, a little bit back and forth, right? He's like, this is meaningless, this is meaningless, this is meaningless, but this is pretty good and God gave that. Do you resonate with that? Isn't that what doubt feels like a little bit? It's very important that we understand this because Ecclesiastes is sort of Solomon's thought experiment in the middle of his doubts. He's trying to say, okay, if under the sun is really all there is, 
I need to think this through and try to decide if there really is any ultimate meaning in life apart from the fear of God. And so in the text that we just read that we're going to walk through today, this is Solomon again doing what he did in chapter one. He's saying, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? He's going to lay out here in the text three pursuits, three pursuits that he chases after to try to find some meaning in this world. And he's going to find there's vanity in all of them. And so point number one, here's what I want us to look at now. The vanity of wisdom. The vanity of wisdom. Will you look back at the Bible in verse 12? I want you to see this in the text. It says, I, the preacher, there's Solomon, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Notice here, number one, Solomon is the wisest person on earth. He gets it. Wisdom, as scripture teaches us, is the art of learning to live skillfully and well in a fallen world. Right? Wisdom, last week I said, um, it's like somebody else has paid what we sometimes call the dumb tax for you, right? They, may, they did the dumb stuff so that you can learn from their lessons and you'll at least do different dumb stuff, right? Um, and so wisdom is the art of saying, how do I navigate the world well? Is this not at least partly the question of all of our hearts? How do I live well? How do I make it count? Solomon, the text says in verse 13, he applied his heart to seek out and search out. He wants to use wisdom and see how does everything work well under the sun. And so he tries to live well. And after all of this, Solomon still looks at his life and he says, I can't control it. Goodness, look at the end of verse 13. It says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Right here, Solomon is essentially accusing God of something. Do you notice that? God has given it and it's no good. Have you ever looked at the heavens and sort of shaken your fist and gone, you messed up. You made a bad call. That's what Solomon is doing right here. And he realizes that everything, even with wisdom, is completely out of his control. He says, what's crooked can't be made straight. So Solomon's going, not only is everything a mess, but here's the worst part. There's nothing you can do about it. Vanity, meaningless. If you're not depressed yet, look at verse 18 with me for a moment. It says, I perceive this is also but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. See, here's the thing. The more you know, the more you realize things aren't the way they're supposed to be. 
If you understand what reality should be, how things are is more and more of a disappointment and an accusation, is it not? Think about this, right? If you're like, you, uh, you, you get the plans off of Etsy to build that piece of furniture, and you go, okay, this is what it's gonna look like when it's done, and then you put it together, and it's not even close. Or the pictures off of Pinterest, I'm gonna make a superhero birthday cake this year. Have you seen the Pinterest fails? You've seen them, right? Here's what we were aiming for, and here's what we ended up with. That's how Solomon is feeling about all of his life. See, here's something you need to understand this morning, New City. The more you learn, the more you learn sadness. This is hard, but it's true. Think of the old adage, knowledge is power. Well, sometimes, but knowledge is often paranoia, isn't it? I know more. I know the likelihood of this happening or that happening, and so now I'm walking around a little more nervous all the time. And people who live under the sun with no perspective of God, they live trying to grasp onto this wisdom to control their lives. This is all of us at different times. We say something like this, if I just understand Marcus Aurelius, or I just understand Plato, or I just consume another Gary Vee or Jordan Peterson YouTube video, I'm gonna level up. If I can be wise enough, I'm gonna make it through life unscathed. Nothing bad can happen. But here's what the text is gonna go on to tell us. I want, you to, uh, I want you to reckon with this, that even the wisest people in the world, no matter how well you navigate life, are still going to die and be forgotten. Now that's a hard truth, is it not? I was on a backpacking trip earlier this weekend with Caleb, in fact, so I'm worried that we ate the same thing and that whatever's coming for him is coming for me. But nevertheless, on, on this backpacking trail, there was a stop with this little cemetery out in the middle of the woods. And I think the newest gravestone was a person that died in 1872. And man, it just makes you sit and consider I was thinking about this person's life, thinking, man, this person had aspirations and hopes and dreams. And this person died not knowing what an airplane was. It'll be said of us. Can you believe they died and they didn't know what X was? They never knew that X or Y happened? That's a sobering thing. Death is the great equalizer. It's coming for all of us and gaining wisdom and knowledge might result in delaying death, right? Because if you're wise, you live a little bit better, right? You eat your vegetables, a high protein diet, you uh, put sunscreen on, you do all the things that you're supposed to do. But nevertheless, death is still coming. And friends, I don't say this merely to depress you, but I want us to take us into the mindset of Solomon right here as he's unfolding this. 
You need to understand something about wisdom this morning. It will not satisfy the deep longings that you have. It doesn't work. Solomon took it all the way to the end and it didn't work. And no matter how good you or I have it in this life, we all have to reckon with the fact that at any moment our lives could be over. And even if we make it another hundred years, that's nothing compared to eternity. It's so short. And we can't control it. And that realization that we can't control this, it infects all the good things in this life. It makes us an anxious and ragged bunch. Who has the answer to this problem? Is there an answer? See, I have to wonder this morning how many of us in the room are chasing the wind, the vanity of wisdom. We live in the information age, y'all. Do we not? You have more access in your pocket to information than people of past civilizations ever encountered. More learning, more knowledge, more degrees, perceived as a great accomplishment, and certainly there's, there's something to that. But has all this knowledge led us to any greater fulfillment? Have you ever gotten your dream of wisdom? I finally figured the thing out, and then you get there and you go, it's just okay. I did it. I accomplished it. And it's just all right. Is there still a profound sadness that exists in the back of your heart, in every human heart? He who holds the most knowledge still dies in the end. And that's where Solomon came as he got into chapter two. He says, okay, wisdom isn't the answer. Maybe it's not wisdom. What about pleasure? It's not wisdom. Let's, let's try pleasure for a minute. And that's exactly what Solomon does. Look at chapter two and verse one. It says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what use is it? Solomon goes out to have a good time. He's not going to hold anything back from himself. Enjoy yourself. That's his way of saying, open the gates. Experience whatever you want to experience. And the word laughter here, it comes with the idea of amusement. Right? Think of getting on a roller coaster. It's fun, isn't it? Roller coaster is a good time unless you're a particularly nauseous person. But it's over quickly. The word laughter also here carries with it a refusal to take life with seriousness or gravity. And he's not saying, hey, it's wrong to laugh. We, we shouldn't laugh. That's not what I'm trying to get you to do this morning or trying to get you to believe. But he's saying, if you live as though nothing is serious or matters in the world, if everything's a joke all the time to you, you're crazy. You're missing the point. Isn't this sort of how children live at times, right? 
And it's not because they're bad, it's just because they're naive. They haven't experienced the world yet. They're constantly looking for amusement, something to keep their attention, something to entertain them. This is why we love to find a good movie and watch it over and over and over. I found myself having to wrestle with this this weekend. There's gonna be a lot of illustrations about the backpacking trip today, okay? I was laying in the tent at the end of the day and we're out in the middle of nowhere with no cell reception and I felt, I lay down and I felt my chest get tight because I'm like, it's just me and my thoughts and it sounds like maybe a raccoon. (laughs) When I'm undistracted for a moment, when I just have to look at my life, I feel the ache come in the longing for pleasure, the longing for distraction. Have you ever met a person like this? Have you ever been a person like this where everything is sort of a joke and they they constantly have to be distracted? There was definitely a time I was like this in my life. Early on in uh, our church planting journey, I remember gathering with uh, the staff, we were in an office, and I, I had background music on as everybody was coming in. And somebody was like, why do you have background music on in our meeting? I was like, I guess I like it. I don't, I don't really know. And then we started to think about it for a minute and I I realized something important. I was very uncomfortable with silence. It made me nervous. There's a moment of undistraction. It made me anxious. Is this you? Have you felt like this? Is there constantly a screen, a movie, a TV show, something in front of you to keep your mind occupied? And Solomon says this approach to life, as pleasurable as it may feel and seem on the outside, it's silliness. It's meaningless. Verse three tells us he, he didn't just try laughter on. Right? He, he tried wine. I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine, and my heart is still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. This is Solomon saying, I drank without, distra- without restraint. This is Solomon sinfully engaging with alcohol. There's no doubt that many people find great pleasure in alcohol, and you need to know this morning, there is nothing inherently sinful about alcohol itself. It's not, it's not more sinful than enjoying ice cream or a, a delicious steak, so I'm not preaching against drinking, right? The Bible has something to say about using alcohol wisely with wisdom. If you have a, uh, a history of alcoholism or a background of alcoholism, right, it's something that you have to be extremely careful with and maybe even abstain from. But the idea here. It's not that this sermon is about alcohol this morning. It's that Solomon has tried to pursue pleasure. Doesn't that drink, right? It just sort of warms you up. And it feels good for a minute, doesn't it? But it's just that. It's a minute. And then it's gone. It's fleeting. It's part of what makes it so dangerous. So deceptive even, and eventually so empty, right? If we think, I just, need, I just need a little more, right? 
Zach S. Wine, and another subject matter, he said, um, something like alcohol is a little like a firework. It's beautiful to, uh, to see in the night sky, to enjoy a little bit of, but if you light that firework off in your living room, it's gonna burn your house to the ground, right? And that's what Solomon tried to do, finding some pleasure. But it wasn't just laughter, it wasn't just wine, it was also possessions and wealth. Look at verse four, it says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools for which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born into my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who, who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. You just saw a word that might distract you in this text, slavery, right? Um, this is not, you need to understand, the Bible's endorsement of like antebellum slavery, the horrendous thing that we experienced here in the United States. Um, but, but nevertheless, right here, without getting into a whole digression on that, what I want you to see is that these things, having slaves and possessions and silver and gold, this was a symbol of wealth and status, it was a symbol of power. And that's what Solomon is appealing to. He's trying to say, I had all the power. I had everything that I could ever want. He was richer and more powerful than any one of us is ever gonna be, right? This is um, the Jeff Bezos or the Bill Gates of his day. He's got it all. And whatever the newest technology, he had it. He tries sexual gratification. Um, in verse eight, it tells us right there, he had concubines, right? In 1 Kings chapter 11, it says, it says this about Solomon. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away their heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had, listen to this, 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. This man had unlimited sexual partners with no reservation complete sexual unrestraint. He could have anything that his mind could desire or imagine, and Solomon is still coming to the end of all of these things, the wine, the, the sex, the, the money, the power, all of it, and his conclusion at the end of all these things is that all was vanity and a striving after the wind. He had it all. Friends, I need you to hear this morning. He had all of our wildest dreams. And he found it meaningless. Why? Because the pleasures don't last. 
And while the initial hit of a pleasure is so good and in the next moment it satisfies it, eventually wears on, wears off, and then it's the search to the next thing, right? Okay, I finally, I finally made it to this rung on the corporate ladder at work. What's next? I, I, I finally beat this level in the game. Next level. What's the next game? What's the next thing? Again and again, over and over and over. Whether it's food or drink or amusement or success or the praise of other people, we can all identify with an aspect, at least, of what Solomon says here. Viktor Frankl, a psychiatrist and sociologist, he famously says that people are made for meaning. But if they can't find meaning, they will distract themselves with pleasure. I wonder how many of us in this room are chasing the wind of pleasure. Just for a moment, would you be honest with yourself and with God? What are you using to distract you because your life is devoid of meaning? Solomon comes to the end of these pleasures and he says, well, maybe it's, maybe it's not pleasure, maybe it's toil. And that's the last point today, the vanity of toil. What is toil? I introduced an image last week that I think gives a pretty clear picture of what the Bible's talking about here. A hamster wheel. You run hard, you run fast, you're tired, but you don't go anywhere. That's toil. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be with someone, be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. Have you ever been in the middle of chasing your dreams and you're giving it everything you've got and you're going hard after it, but then you lay down in your bed at the end of the night and it's just you staring at the ceiling and you go, oh God, is this it? Is this it? That I just get up and I get back on the hamster wheel day in and day out over and over and over? If that's all there really is, how can I even go on? The work of our hands will presumably be left to another to enjoy. 
And God's word tells us in other places, right, that it's, it's a good thing to leave an inheritance to your children. But you have no control over what your children are going to do with that inheritance. Will they do good? Will they do bad? It is not up to you. Oftentimes when we think about legacy, right, or passing something on to the next generation, we have a phrase that we throw around, right? He, he lives on through me, right? I'm carrying his legacy and so he never really has to die. This is our attempt at immortality, is it not? I'm gonna pass it on to the next generation so my legacy goes a little bit further and a little bit further but we spend our whole lives toiling for something that's going to extend our lives. And ironically, the toil, when we give ourselves fully, fully to it, shortens our lives. <laughs> and when we are gone, all we will have gained are the toys that we amassed and left for someone else to enjoy. Is this you? Are you toiling, toiling to pass something on, believing that that's what's gonna make your life most meaningful? God says through Solomon here that at least at face value, if that's all you got, it's vanity. I want you to remember something that I said last week. Part of what Solomon is trying to do is rob us of every sense of false hope that we have so that he can rebuild something better. What false hope have you brought into the room? Wisdom, pleasure, toil. Where are you putting your hope this morning? How many of us are striving and reaching and anxiously grasping for those few years at the end of our lives so we can finally retire and then when we get there, we'll just be bored? Those years aren't even guaranteed, and if we get them, Solomon is telling us they're just a vapor anyway. Goodness, this is sober, is it not? So what's the refrain, friends? I'm almost done. What is the refrain that we've heard over and over and over and over? It is the same refrain that will continue through this whole book. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This little phrase right here is meant to pierce the heart of every one of us. Don't miss this. Every one of us is striving for something. If you think you're not, you just don't know what it is yet. Every one of us is striving. There is a longing in every human heart, an ache for something eternal and something that lasts a satisfaction that we're all searching for. And this is the longing and the striving that Solomon continually returns to. But guess what? He keeps hitting the ceiling under the sun. He keeps slamming into it. Every time he gets his hands on something, it seems to slip through his fingers and he's left with the wind. Solomon is looking for something eternal in the things of earth. He is looking for ultimate meaning. And that is a meaning that life under the sun was never meant to provide for you. 
But our friend Solomon right now, if we're honest, he's settling for it. This is it. It's terrible. So what? Is that all there is for us? No, 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 friends. You see, C.S. Lewis, again, he says this beautiful thing. He says, you see, the problem with our desires is not that they're too strong. No, 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 it's that they're, they're too weak. We're too easily pleased. It's like we settle for mud pies in the sand when we're being offered a holiday at sea. That's British speak for a vacation. <laughs> we settle too quickly. You and I, we frantically search for something to satisfy our souls and we settle on the gifts, hear me, rather than the giver. Everything below the sun is a billboard that's meant to point you to the creator above the sun. That's what these things are designed for. We spend ourselves and wear ourselves out the same way that Solomon does, moving from urge to urge, looking for that one thing that will finally be the answer. Where can I find rest? Where can I put an end to all this toil and this striving and not just take these gifts, but not experience the giver? Oh, friends, there is good news in the gospel. Band, you guys can come on up. Listen to the words of your Lord Jesus. If this has felt very Jesusless up to this point, this has been on purpose because I need you to feel what Solomon felt so that you can feel the cool water of the gospel in this moment. Don't miss it. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Hear these words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The good news of the gospel is not that you get to escape a world field, filled with meaningless and trivial pursuits. No, no, no. The gift of the gospel is that the God above the sun came under the sun to bear the burden with you. See that image in the Matthew text that I just read, take my yoke upon you. It's the image of oxen who work together. Have you ever seen that? A piece of wood that goes across the shoulders of two oxen and they can pull a plow together. In that situation, there's always a lead ox and a training ox. And what Jesus is trying to communicate right here when he says, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, I'm the lead ox. I'm going to carry the weight of the burden, but you come get your shoulders underneath it. And guess what? You get the credit. And that's the core of the good news of the gospel, friends, is that you get the credit. You get the credit for a righteousness that you didn't earn in a world filled with striving and brokenness. You get to walk with the God who can make these things lasting. Because now, guess what? It's no longer just a pursuit of wisdom. It's a pursuit of wisdom hand in hand with the God you were made to walk with. 
It's no longer just pleasure. It's experiencing the joy of coffee and sex and good movies. And you see those things no longer as just an end in themselves, but they are pointing you to the enjoyability of Almighty God. He gives you that in Jesus. And no longer is your toil meaningless, Christian. If you are in Christ, you work heartily as unto the Lord. Every day, you work with the Lord Jesus. I don't care if you sweep floors or you teach classes at a university or you work at a gas station or you serve in vocational ministry, whatever it is you do, if you are a Christian, it is always take your kid to work day Jesus is taking you to work with him. Friends, don't pursue the gifts of God simply for themselves. They're futile. Solomon has told you this again and again. Enjoy God's good gifts in relationship with him and wisdom and pleasure and work are all good things that find their proper place with God at the center. Will you let him reorder your universe this morning? Take you out of the center? You're miserable at the center of your own universe. I know because I was the center of my own universe. Telling you if you just give it up, the Lord can do a work. Let's pray. God, it's easy to become discouraged in the toil of life. And Jesus, I just have a feeling that you are, you are tearing us down to the absolute studs in this book so that you can rebuild something lasting. Have your way. Build. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.